The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to the Americano podcast, a series of discussions about American politics and life. My name is Freddie Gray. I'm the deputy editor of The Spectator. I am delighted to be joined today by Dr. Samuel Gregg, who is the author of a new book, The Next American Economy, Nation, State and Markets in an Uncertain World. Samuel, I think it's fair to say it's quite a timely book, given the perilous state of the global economy. And uh, I thought I'd start by asking you about yesterday, it emerged that inflation is not going down as quickly as the American government hoped it would. And we seem to be in a situation where the Federal Reserve is unable to bring down inflation. It's not having the impact that it wants to have with its rate rises and so on. Are we in a crisis of capitalism more broadly? Well, thanks, Freddie, for having me on the the show. I have thought a lot about that particular question in terms of whether we're facing some sort of fundamental crisis of capitalism. And it was in the back of my mind, of course, when I when I wrote this book. And my, my short answer to that is, yes, we do have a type of crisis that is not just characteristic, I think, of American capitalism, but free market economies around the world. And Part of the nature of the crisis, I think, is this. We have relied for quite some time upon central banks running low interest rate policies. This is something that goes back to the Greenspan era. It's something that became more apparent as a consequence of the financial crisis. And even in the lead up to the financial crisis, this was already becoming a phenomenon. And one of the reasons I think this is the case, why we're relying on central banks to do this, is because governments around the world have basically stopped the process of serious fiscal reform that was very apparent in the 1980s with Thatcher, Reagan, and a host of other governments around the world. And instead of doing the hard yards of engaging in substantive economic reform, governments have been relying for a long time now on central banks keeping interest rates excessively low. Now, you can do that for a while, but at some point that's going to catch up with you. At some point, liquidity is going to be too great in the economy. And when you add to that a pandemic to which central banks reacted, as we all know, by reducing interest rates once again, and not just that, but also engaging in even more quantitative easing than they had already been engaged in, you can see very clearly why we've ended up in this particular situation So that's one part of the crisis that we've relied too much on central banks and low interest monetary policy. But the second part of the crisis is a political one. The apparent inability of governments to embrace and pursue the type of market orientated reforms that you need if you're going to continue to have significant growth. That's true in America. I think that's also true in Britain as well. I think Britain, for example, was more or less stuck in a type of 
Gordon Brown set of economic arrangements, which successive Tory governments really haven't challenged until relatively recently. And then, as you know better than I, within 48 hours, they've reversed their position. So, yes, I think we have a crisis on the monetary side, but we also have a crisis on the fiscal side, which reflects the fact that governments are not fulfilling their responsibilities when it comes to making sure that we can continue to have the type of economic growth that gives us prosperity. It's interesting you mentioned Britain because, of course, today Kwasi Kwarteng has been sacked as Chancellor of the Exchequer. Yes. And this does represent a spectacular U-turn, a screeching U-turn from Prime Minister Liz Truss, and I think perhaps shows that even if there is the political will at the top to change the fundamentals of the economy, it meets very, very fierce resistance and actually loses politically. The political fight has been lost. Yes, I think that's true. And you see this particularly on the part of legislators, right? So in Britain and in the United States, it's not just the left, so to speak, who will oppose substantive, let's call them market-orientated reforms. There's plenty of Tory MPs and plenty of Republican senators and members of Congress who will do the same thing, who will essentially say, no, we can't do this because it's going to hurt particular groups of people, this is irresponsible, we can't be doing this right now, let's wait for a better time to do it. Of course, they never get around to doing that. So yes, I think what what you're pointing to is not just a lack of will on the part of some governments, there's also the lack of widespread political consensus in favour of these types of reforms, not just on the left, but also on the right, in America and Western Europe and other developed economies, which is very different, I think, from the situation of the 1980s and even up until the mid-1990s, where you had some support, at least, even significant support for these types of economic reforms. But that pro-market consensus has broken down across the right, generally speaking, around the world partly because of inertia, partly also because of a lack of confidence, I think, in the ideas. And that's one of the things my book talks about, how we ended up in this particular situation in America. And that's a a long political story, which I think begins in the early 1990s with the rise of people like Pat Buchanan and others who are very sceptical of economic globalization, very sceptical of, of markets. And of course, this reached a type of crescendo on the right with the emergence of Donald Trump and the resurgence of economic nationalism in the United States, but other countries as well. In the book, you sort of make it quite clear that you think that the Western global economy is run by corporatism more than actual free market capitalism today. Is that right? Yes, I think that's an accurate description, because when I hear people say to me things like, America has this laissez-faire economy where anyone can do whatever they want with minimal interference, well, that's simply not true. We live in economies that are highly marked by a lot of intervention, a lot of regulation, in which the government and the federal government in the United States controls just over something like 30, 32, 33% of national GDP. That doesn't sound like a radical free market economy to me. But we also are very characterized, and it's not just America, I think this is a phenomenon in many Western countries. It's a type of cronyism where you have these close relationships between business and the political class on both sides of politics. And the way we talk about this in terms of political economy is the word that you just used, corporatism. 
Corporatism is the idea that we have business, unions, NGOs, interest groups, all of which work closely with whoever happens to be in power to try and manage economies in the direction of trying to realize certain national and international, even international objectives. And that, I think, is very much what characterizes Western economies today. It's not so much socialism, classically defined, that's the problem. It's not even mild Keynesianism. It's really this type of collusion that I think works against the interests of consumers, against the the interests of taxpayers, and the interests of new entrepreneurs, people who want to make their way into the economy but do not have political connections. It's really what I would describe as a type of neo-mercantilism, which is, of course, what Adam Smith spends a great deal of time critiquing in his, his Wealth of Nations. If you look at the type of mercantilist arrangements that he made the target of that particular book, which I would argue is one of the books that changed the course of the world in many respects, Mercantilism is the target, and I think in many respects we're dealing with neo-mercantilist circumstances in America, but also in Western economies more generally. And it's a cons- I mean, Adam Smith called it a conspiracy against the public. Um, Absolutely, and that's what. Absolutely, and so what what you're seeing happen is that elites are colluding with corporations, with big business, against the public, and that triggers populism. But as you, I think, would argue, populism doesn't give the political answers that that are needed. Is that not right? That's exactly my argument. So we've seen the rise of economic populism in the United States with people calling for protectionism, industrial policy, the types of policies that are clearly not particularly free market or free trade in their orientation. And the populism is not one of people saying, hey, we just want the government off our back. It's not populists calling for dismantling the regulatory state or winding back the administrative state. On both the right and the left in so much of the West today, it's not like they're arguing for less regulation or less intervention. They want more of these these sorts of things. So if you look at the, the profile of the typical Trump voter in the United States, yes, they don't like the government. They don't like Washington, D.C., They're angry with elites, business elites, political elites, elites within the political parties, but they're not arguing for a liberalization of the economy. These are people who are arguing for more government intervention. It's noticeable, for example, if you look at President Donald Trump's economic record, he didn't do anything in terms of dealing with entitlements. He did a little bit on the regulatory side, but not that much. I think that that actually has been exaggerated. The claim that he somehow was a big deregulator, I think that's that's exaggerated. Mm. And he made it very clear by both things he said, but also people that he appointed, that he was going to move more in the direction of some of these economic nationalist policies, many of which were welcomed by people on the right, But curiously, some of his policies weren't that different from some of the things that someone on the left, like Senator Bernie Sanders, was arguing for. Donald Trump is a trade skeptic. Bernie Sanders is a trade skeptic. So it's interesting. You see this this strange mixing up on the left and the right now when it comes to economic issues and economic policy, because in many respects, some people on the right have more in common, economically speaking, in terms of their policies 
with people on the left than they do with what's, let's call it the pro-market right. Mm. And President Joe Biden, you would say, has continued in the same protectionist vein as Donald Trump. Yes, that's absolutely true. So if you look at some of his policies, he has essentially continued most of the same policies, when it comes, especially when it comes to trade. He's really done very little in terms of changing trade policy towards a more free, free trade position. In fact, he's more or less gone down the same path as uh, President Trump. And he's made no bones about doing that. He's made no apologies for doing that. And we shouldn't be surprised because that's actually much more reflective of Joe Biden's preferred set of political policies if you go back throughout his career. He's never a particularly gung-ho guy in favor of free trade. I think for someone like him, cronyism is simply reality. I think for someone of his background and the way he's done politics, that type of government intervention and collusion with business against consumers, against taxpayers, that's more or less been his modus operandi. So we shouldn't be surprised that he has more or less continued along the same sorts of lines. And in some respects, of course, he's deepened government intervention into the economy. Not least, but of course, he's also said things like he wants to see an end to quote-unquote shareholder capitalism. Mm. He said this in his uh, presidential campaign. And that implies that he's in favour of what's called stakeholder capitalism, which, of course, is a, a very popular thing among on the progressive left right now, but also with some considerable number of, of business leaders who I think see this as the way of the future. Well, and there's a very interesting bit in your book where you talk about woke capitalism, what's called woke capitalism, yes. which is an interesting sort of turnaround because now companies are being expected to not just to drive profits, but to also be political actors. Yes, that's exactly right. So stakeholder capitalism is a theory of business and a theory of how the broader economy should work that's been around for, for some time, but it's, it's acquired considerable political traction in more recent years for a number of reasons. One is because business schools are dominated by this type of thinking. So the idea that business schools around the world are full of these Gordon Gecko, gun-ho free market types is simply a myth. They're just not. Most business schools are, are teaching things that very much flow along the lines of stakeholder capitalism. It's become very attractive to people on the left because they see this as a way of co-opting very large corporations, but also medium-sized businesses into incorporating what would classically be defined as progressive social goals into the agenda and modus operandi of how businesses operate. We're also seeing some of this, this starting to be legislated and regulated now via institutions like the Security and Exchange Commission, which are saying things like, well, when it comes to people on your board, you need to have diversity, by which they mean racial and sexual diversity. They don't ever talk about political viewpoint diversity or religious diversity. It's all about race and sex. And you have the SEC and other regulators trying to push businesses down this path. Now, my sense is some business leaders have embraced this freely because they see this as a way of warding off regulation in the future. So they can say, well, look, we're already doing this. We don't need to be regulated. But I'm afraid that time has passed because appeasement does not work with the people that they're trying 
to appease. And then, of course, I think there are some business leaders who are woke, who, for whatever reason, have embraced a number of progressive causes because they actually believe in them. And we shouldn't be surprised. I think there's often a myth that people think of business people as being these very strong capitalists, believers in dynamic markets, etc. I think that's a myth. That's always been a myth. Adam Smith pointed out that this was a myth. He was very critical of the merchants of his time for getting together to conspire, as he said, and I think you referenced this before, to conspire against the public. And so we're seeing a very similar dynamic happen now, but it's through the vehicle of stakeholder capitalism. And it's interesting you mentioned Pat Buchanan and, and the, the revolt against what's perceived to be sort of laissez-faire capitalism on the right. But that revulsion at things like, you know, the World Economic Forum that you see a lot mm-hmm. of on the internet, there's a disgust towards the elites. You're saying that it expresses itself as anti-globalization, doesn't it? But it, perhaps it shouldn't. Is that what you're saying? Yes, I'm basically arguing that if you look at organizations like the World Economic Forum and people like Klaus Schwab, who is the chairman of the World Economic Forum, he is fully embracing things like stakeholder capitalism. And I think I'm very critical of stakeholder capitalism for economic and political reasons. And in much of the world today, we see, as you you mentioned, a revulsion against organizations like the World Economic Forum. But the problem is the revulsion is rightly directed in the sense that people like Klaus Schwab and others do have this particular vision of what they think capitalism should be about. And they have this sense that they want business and NGOs and governments working together to achieve progressive goals. They're very clear about that. So I share that revulsion and anger as well. The problem is you don't fix that through more regulation or intervention. That's not how you fix that problem because regulation and intervention is what enables things like stakeholder capitalism and ESG and all these other things because all those things depend, like any form of cronyism, upon the capacity of government to give people what they demand or what they ask for. The more you reduce regulation, the more you reduce the size of bureaucracy in the regulatory state, the capacity of government to give out favours becomes less and less. So that's why I would argue if you want to deal with some of these problems, one of the most effective ways of doing so is reducing the size of government, which implies creating more space for business and market transactions. To what extent, I note that Adam Smith believed that the invisible hand needed to be guided by religious morality. And the fact that we are living in a sort of post-Christian universe now, to what extent does that make it impossible to stop corporatism? Because the morality behind Mm -hmm. capitalism has gone. Well, Adam Smith, of course, was very clear. And you read this in things like his theory of moral sentiments, which was published in 1759, which he revised extensively throughout his life. And he actually regarded that as his favorite book. And the theory of moral sentiment is, of sentiments is, of course, it's a work of moral philosophy rather than one of economics. But what's fascinating about that book is that in his last revisions, which were, I think, done in 1790, he talks there about the importance of virtue. He talks about the importance of the classical virtues. He talks about commercial virtues. And then he talks about what we would call religious virtues. So Smith's vision of the market is not one that's untethered 
morally. It's clearly understood as operating within a complex network of Christian, commercial, ancient, and what we might call enlightenment virtues and habits. That's clearly the vision that he has of how markets should operate within a particular type of moral culture. So if you look at today where we see the Christian virtues have been marginalized in many respects or distorted into these faux forms of social justice talk, where you see a fair amount of anti-enlightenment sentiment around, particularly when it comes to things like the Scottish Enlightenment, which I think was an incredibly important intellectual movement for the Anglo-American world. And even the commercial virtues are sort of looked down on as, well, these are bourgeois things. No real person would want to have anything to do with this. And you can see this with many of the younger people who are going into the corporate world today. If you talk to them about these these broader virtues, classical, commercial, and religious virtues, that's not the mental framework they're operating with. They're operating with what you might call a highly progressive conception of social justice is the moral framework that they bring to the activities that they do on a day-by-day basis. There's been a significant uptick in the number of younger people in business who think this way. So we shouldn't be surprised to see woke capitalists becoming more and more prominent. But of course, I think the problem with that is, is that that type of social justice lefty outlook is inherently opposed to things that the market does every day, whether it's things like pursuing profit, whether it's entering into transactions because it's mutually beneficial, it's in your rational self-interest, etc. The sort of social justice mentality does not have any time for that. So when you have people with a, a mental outlook like that operating in business, we shouldn't be surprised to see some of the phenomena that we've already talked about starting to develop and gain hold in a lot of the commercial world. You end the book on a note of hope and optimism. And uh, I think if I understand it rightly, your optimism comes from believing that there's something in America's DNA, in the constitution of America, that, that will drive it back towards becoming a commercial republic, as you call it, which is what it has to be. Yes, that's right. So one of the things about America that makes America different from many other countries is that its identity as a nation is not about ethnicity, it's not even about a particular religion, it's not about some of the things that give European countries a distinct identity. American identity essentially emerges, I think, and there are other people who have argued this as well, from the American founding, the texts, the documents, and the debates. Those are the things that Americans look back to when they're asking themselves, what are we? Who are we as a people? And if you look at those texts, whether it's the Constitution, whether it's the Declaration of Independence, or something like the Federalist Papers, which was incredibly influential and still remains very influential today in shaping American politics, the vision of commerce there is overwhelmingly positive. It's seen as something that's integral to American identity, and it goes along with what Americans often talk about and what the founders talked about, which was Republican virtue. So this is where this idea of a commercial society comes from. It's not a republic like the Roman Republic, which was a highly militaristic exercise. It's a commercial republic in which commerce defines so much of what everyone does every day. 
And that's important. It's important because today politics has moved away in many respects from debates about the economy, which was, I think, very influential, of course, in the 1980s and 1990s. In the Western world today, it's about identity. Politics is about who is my people? Where do I live? Who is my community? Who is my tribe? I don't think you can really understand what's happening in Western politics without understanding that crucial role played by identity. So if you are like me and you believe in the importance of free markets and limited government and constitutionalism, if you're trying to get those arguments across, you have no choice. You must articulate these in terms of identity. That is the only way I think you can persuade Americans, particularly those who are more skeptical about markets, that this is part of who Americans are, that a commercial society, a dynamic market, entrepreneurship, competition, this is part of who Americans are as a people. And a free market is in America, and I say this very clearly in the book, if they don't understand that markets can't be just about we deliver more stuff more efficiently and more effectively, if that's your argument in contemporary America, you lose. You must attach the argument for markets to what it means to be an American. And I think that's going to be a challenge for a lot of free marketers who have not been used to talking like that. Well, and on the right, as you identify, nationalism has has grown. Mm -hmm. How is it possible for the nation state to exist in the way that you want the world to go? How would the nation state exist? Would it be nationalist? Mm -hmm. Well, it would not be nationalist in the sense that some people on the right are talking about that in the sense that that means a type of closedness to the rest of the economic world, a skeptical view of the rest of the world. My view is that the type of commercial republic that the book talks about is how you bring together this concern for identity with this concern for commercial society, for markets. And if you go back and you look at the founding period, you don't see founders having a very closed view of the world. They're very aware that even before the Constitution was ratified, Americans were trading everywhere around the world. And there's other examples of this where you can have a strong sense of national identity go together with a strong sense of living in a dynamic market economy. Britain in the 19th century is the classic example of this. Remember, it embraced free trade, more or less unilateral free trade with the Corn Laws. And British commerce spread around the world extremely quickly. And this wasn't presented as a type of, well, this is all just one world, perfect order. We're going to live in a Kantian perpetual peace. No, it was all about British goods, British banks, British commerce penetrating to every sector of the global economy. And none of that involved giving up on being British or merging your identity into this type of globalist miasma. There are ways that you can do this. There are ways in which you can bring together this concern for identity and a concern for the things that work economically. But it's a delicate balance. And that's one of the things I say in the book. I say this is going to be very hard and I'm not promising that this can will necessarily happen. But if free marketers are serious about grounding their arguments in the political realities of the time, I don't think they have any choice. One thing that we as a Western societies have, have moved away from, perhaps, is accepting failure. Mm. And that's in 2008, that's probably the biggest example of when the state comes in and says, no, we won't allow these things to fail. Is that where we've gone wrong? It's one of the areas in which we've certainly gone wrong, because in the conditions of a market, 
a failure of a business or a failure of a new enterprise or even the failure of an idea to get off the ground, that's just part of the way the economy works as you basically work out what is going to work, what consumers like, what consumers don't like, etc. So in America, for a very long time, things like economic failure were not given, they were not stigmatized. They were not stigmatized. So when Alexis de Tocqueville visited the United States in the 1830s, he immediately noticed that Americans were extremely entrepreneurial. And lots of, the, lots of their entrepreneurial ventures failed. And he noticed that Americans didn't care. They would just get up and start a new business or move to a different part of the country and do something different. So failure in the market did not carry the type of stigma that it does, for example, in a lot of Western European countries. But in America, I think we've seen a shift away from that. There's a sense of, well, if the business is big enough, then we can't let it fail because if it fails, that will mean a lack of jobs. It will mean turmoil. It will mean disruption, etc. And we saw this. This was the logic used by the federal government in the financial crisis, as you mentioned, for intervening to basically prop up all sorts of things, ranging from the mortgage industry to car companies, etc. The problem is, is that you create then the problem of what economists call moral hazard, right? Because if businesses operate knowing that if they fail, the government is likely to bail them out, that's only going to encourage them to take on more risk than they otherwise would. So you get yourself in this very negative cycle whereby you're constantly bailing out organizations on the basis that failure cannot be permitted. But not permitting failure means that you encourage businesses to do dumb things that in any other circumstances would lead to them going bankrupt. And you mentioned earlier the pandemic. We've obviously had huge state interventions in the economy because mm. of that. Do you think we might be approaching, as some people, people like me who tend to be pretty gloomy, think we might be approaching a very, very large collapse because there has been so much misallocation of capital since 2008, particularly? Well, I think if markets are allowed to correct themselves, which is a big if, right, if markets are allowed to correct themselves, then I think we'll certainly have a recession. In fact, I think America already is in a recession. But that's what recessions do. They enable market corrections to happen. And market corrections are messy, unpleasant. People lose their jobs. People's stock market portfolios decline in value, etc. But there's a clearing out process that occurs as businesses that should have been allowed to go bankrupt go bankrupt. As you get excessive liquidity out of the economy, etc., that's a very painful and difficult process, but it's a necessary corrective. The problem, I think, is that populations are understandably reluctant to go through that. Governments are very reluctant to go through that because if they allow that to happen or if they mismanage the process by which that happens, they're likely to lose office. So I'm not perhaps quite as gloomy as you, but I do think that it goes back to this unwillingness to deal with the failure problem, that unless we're willing to let even some large corporations go to the wall, and that means a big cost in terms of employment and capital and things like that, if governments keep intervening to basically correct for the dysfunctional effects of previous interventions, then we get ourselves in this very negative cycle. 
not just a negative economic cycle, but a negative political cycle. Because if the expectation of voters is that governments exist to get us out of these problems, then there's no way out of that cycle. And that's that's the type of negative cycle that I'm worried about that we're going to enter into. And I think actually we're seeing that a little bit in Britain right now, right, with the Tory backbenchers, some significant Tories revolting and saying, no, we are unwilling to do the hard things because that's probably going to mean that we lose office. Well, on that uh, not entirely gloomy note, we'll end it there. Samuel Gregory, it's been a great pleasure talking to you and very, very interesting. Thank you for coming on to Americano. Thank you, Freddie. Very good to talk with you. Thank you very much for listening to that episode of Americano. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe. And if you really enjoyed it, please leave us a star rating, preferably five stars, and a review. (laughs) 